Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. Though the Bible looks like a book, it is really a library of books. In fact, I prefer to think of it as a curated library. So maybe it's like a book library or maybe it's like your music library. Sometimes I even think of the Bible as a curated art exhibit. As you know, art exhibits don't just appear from nowhere. Somebody has to think about the experience and curate it and put it together. And they go out and they find lots of different pieces that come from lots of different times and lots of different places by lots of different originators, creators. Sure, all of these pieces emerged from some very particular place in time in an original setting, but the reality is, by the time you are experiencing it in an art gallery, you are so far removed from wherever it actually originated from, that's long ago. The only reason you are encountering it now is because it has been curated together for you in this show, next to and proximate to other pieces that have been selected for you. And these disparate pieces have been curated for a reason. Of course, if you want to, you can walk up to the little placard and read a little bit of information about the origins tale. But don't miss out on actually being encountered by that piece here and now in this gallery in relation to the other pieces. 
If all you do is walk up to the little placard and read it, we could have just emailed you that information at home. When you start taking in the piece itself, you begin to see certain themes and moments emerge and play off the images you've already seen in other pieces in the gallery. And you realize you are in the hands of a curator. These pieces and moments have been brought together in a way to lead you somewhere. And you actually need the Bible to tell you, to guide you into an encounter. Because otherwise, you on your own are never going to just pick up the prophet Amos's writings or story and lay it next to an email that Paul wrote to a Thessalonian church 800 years later, next to the gospel according to Matthew unless the Bible as a gallery invites you to read them together. Now, the church's schedule of scriptures, I mean, it's the Episcopal church, so we never let any unpretension go unused. So instead of just calling it a schedule, it's a lectionary. So the lectionary acts like a... (laughs) I remember this one time, I had a professor who said, oh, you know you're in an Episcopal church when they call the basement the undercroft and they call the the lobby the, uh, the narthex. It's like, yeah, that's about right. Um, Okay. The schedule of scriptures called a lectionary acts like a docent in the gallery. And they come up and say, hey, look at these three together. What do you notice? What do you see? What themes emerge? Seven weeks before Christmas, (laughs) we start reading these kinds of scriptures that talk about the end. And it gets more intense the closer you get to Christmas. In fact, it gets so intense that the last four even get their own season called Advent. But the texts turn today. And there are many ways that the Bible talks about the end. Each with its own nuance, its own perspective, sometimes arguing amongst itself. And to enter into that is actually going to force you past easy notions of whether you agree or disagree or if you feel positive or negative. It's interested in something thicker than that, denser than that. Sometimes when we think of the end, we think of it as a completion. The paper finally submitted. Well, that was a mistake because now it just ruined my notes. I don't even know where to where to get back to. They're not even going to make sense of that on the podcast. They're going to be like, "Gosh, this guy is—he he needs a break. He just can't even follow a simple outline today." Sometimes the end is a completion, and you send your paper in. Other times, it's that last puzzle piece that finally gets fitted together. All your grades get submitted. You turn them in, and you don't have to do another one. That's the end as completion. But sometimes the end is the goal, the finish line in the marathon. Turning off your maps application, not because something went wrong, but because you got to where you needed to go. So you just turn it off. Friday, 5 p.m. hits and the laptop slams shut for the weekend. That is the end as the goal. And sometimes the end is more like the termination. The relationship 
dissolves. The employment gets severed. The last breath expires. That's the end as termination. All of these, and frankly many more, are in play when the exhibit called Bible imagines the end. Now one way, just for one, one way that the Bible talks about the end is by employing the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now Amos is a southern animal breeder from Tekoa. And he preaches about the day of the Lord in a period of prosperity. And he calls out a number of crimes and war crimes. Actually, Matthew Slim wrote an article in SBL a long time ago that just kind of lays the Geneva Conventions next to Amos and says, yeah, there it is. Amos calls out a number of these crimes, treaty violations, creating refugee populations, torturing prisoners, violence against women. Furthermore, Amos is not really a prosperity preacher. (laughs) I don't think Amos would do well in Texas. He really doesn't mince his words. His Hebrew is actually quite good too. And he really comes after those who have much. Amos is also not a member of the religious establishment. God called him out of the fields. The Lord took him from following the flocks and said, you're going to have to go speak to my people now. And Amos does something kind of cool. He, in a way, Ellen Davis calls it democratizing prophecy. So many of the prophets before Amos would just go to the kings. We just want to, you know, speak truth to power, as it were. Nathan spoke to David. Elijah spoke to Ahab. Amos bypasses the alleged leaders and just goes right to the people. I have a word from the Lord for y'all. And when he speaks, he speaks of the day of the Lord. He says that the day of the Lord will be like somebody who finally manages to flee a lion only to run into the embrace of a bear. Or like somebody on the lamb who ducks into a house for refuge and rests their hand against the wall to try to catch a breath only for a snake to jump out and bite them. Amos asks, are you sure that you want the day of the Lord? Amos tells his people a message from God. Y'all can keep your festivals. Please, please keep your joyous assemblies to yourself. Did I tell you that I want these burned offerings? I don't have any need for your food sacrifices. Seems like you get a lot of pleasure out of this, but I'm not getting any. And please don't bother me with your well-fed animals. I won't even look at them. These songs you keep singing to me, it's just, it's not even brown noise or white noise or green noise that would like lull me into, you know, forgetting other things. This is just racket. It's just noise. I don't want to hear it. Bring them to the end. And the very next verse is the exact text that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quotes in both his letter from a Birmingham jail and his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Rather, start letting justice roll down 
like waters. And let righteousness come down like an ever-flowing stream. What is the end from a Christian theological perspective? Now, pop theology encourages us to think about the end as ultimately the good place and the bad place. And life is this kind of warped reality show to make sure that you get to the good place by the end. And I just want to tell you that as I read the scriptures, as I listen to the saints, in a humble sense of, wow, I really want to get this right for myself, I am less persuaded into thinking that there is some ultimate good place and ultimate bad place. And I am more persuaded to think that there is really just one reality named God. And the end or the goal, where it's all going, is that we are destined for an uninterrupted, constant communion with this God. This God has continually promised, you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, come on, be honest with me for just a second. It's in church, so we ought to do that for at least a moment. If I told you that behind that door right there, you walk in, you can be in an instant, immediate, uninterrupted, constant communion with the fullness of God's presence, you might want to go, but who's going to be first in line? Really? Like, this is the call to... uh, This is the get real button. Just get real with yourself for a moment. Come on. You really want to be that close to God right now? There's nothing you want to do to like get ready for that? I think about the end this way. Pop theology tells us there's two pots of water on your oven range, the good pot and the bad pot. And the end is what happens when you get sorted here or here. Or maybe there's just one pot. If you put an egg into a pot of rolling water, what happens to the egg? Exactly, Laura, it hardens up, doesn't it? But if you put a potato into that same pot, what happens to the potato? Gets soft. So it is with God. The end is to be with God, the consuming fire forever. And if that sounds like a blessing to you, I think your heart will soften to that. And you say, yeah, let's go. But if being with God forever sounds like a burden, that same reality might harden your heart. And this is exactly what happened to Moses and Pharaoh. God didn't treat Pharaoh any different than God treated Moses. God just got close to both. And sometimes their hearts were hardened. Sometimes their hearts were softened but God was just coming close. You see, in the end, I don't think that we experience different pots of reality. I think we're all like pieces of clay being stuck into the intense heat of a kiln, and the intense heat of the kiln actually perfects us. And if we are open to that, we'll receive that as a blessing, and if not, I mean, haven't you ever been stuck in a room that you just didn't want to be in at all? Or in a car with people that you just think, my God, how, 
We still have 90 minutes to go. All right. So you just like map that onto eternity for half a second and you see how this goes. Anglican priest, one of ours, John Wesley, preaches the end this way. God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Now, the, the Bible, if you spent time in a Bible church before, you know he's quoting book of Revelation. Um, he's not just riffing here. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are done away. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more sickness, no more grieving, no more parting with our friends, no more sorrow, no more crying. There will be an even greater deliverance. There won't even be any more sin. But to crown it all, there will be a deep and intimate and uninterrupted union with God. A constant communion with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. A continual enjoyment of the three-one God and of all of the creatures in God. This is why principally for Christians, when we think about the end, it's always communion. And as Christians, whenever we're going to think about the end, we can't think about communion as some Pollyanna church potluck in the sky. The way that we get to the end as Christians is by way of the cross. Jesus Christ's final words on the cross are, it is finished the end. God's work of creating and recreating is complete. God's desire to be with us has reached its goal, not just with us in life, but now with us in death. God's enemies, sin and death that have enslaved us, have been terminated. The end. Which is to say that for Jesus, Good Friday is the day of the Lord the end. And he knew this when his sweat was like blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Good Friday for him, <laughs> doomed to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you want the day of the Lord? There's no light there. It's going to be like you fleeing a lion only to be met by a bear. It's going to be like seeking refuge in a house and get bit by a snake anyway. Christians, we do not remember Fridays as the Lord's Day. I mean, I hate to bring grammar into it, but you know, the day of the Lord and the apostrophe S, yes, that's just, it's just a genitive construction there. We remember Sundays as the Lord's Day. The day when Jesus overcame the grave, the day when victims become victors, the day when Christ freed all humanity from the tyranny of death, the day when everybody's sins get forgiven, and the day when we all get brought back to life. So yes, the day of the Lord for Jesus was Friday, death. But the Lord's day for us is Sunday, resurrection. Just don't forget that resurrection only works on things that are dead. The end.
can find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.